This is our Suburb Trends report for June 2021. We'll be looking at where prices are moving across the country, either up or down, and why they're moving. In this episode, we'll take a high-level view across the country, looking at price movements over the last 12 months and, dare we say it, what the prediction is for the rest of 2021 for houses. It's on one of my lists here, and it's the change in asking price in the last 12 months is plus 43%. So it's quite crazy. And the inventory levels at the moment below 1.5 and trending down. So you can see that level of crazy is going to continue on. Welcome to the Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. And I'm Kent, the data geek. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free full or forecast report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au This month's focus is very much on what's been happening over the past 12 months and whether we can draw on this data to have any confidence in expectations for the rest of 2021. As well as the obvious price growth areas, we will talk about some of the low growth, low inventory markets. And we'll also look at a small number of outlier markets with lower inventory levels, but still haven't seen high price growth. Kent, what's our starting point for this analysis? Well, our starting point is we've been analysing what we call a statistical area three or an SA3, and that's what I call a market because suburbs are often too small in sample sizes and local government areas, I'll pick on Brisbane, for example, are way too big. So the just right size is an SA3. It's like mama bear. It is. It is. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's how many of those markets are there in the country? There's about 333 that I analyse. There are more than that, that, that a lot of them are, have got an outback in the name and they always misbehave. So we typically, I typically focus on 330 markets and that's for houses and, and a lot less than that when it comes to units because so many of these SA3s have very, very few unit sales. Mm. So what are we talking about today? Units and houses or just houses? Yeah, I've got a little bit on both. So I've, I've, I've printed off some listicles. I love that word. Listicles. <laughs> so I've got some list, and I've got the blue tack out and I've stuck them on the wall so we can talk a little bit about unit markets as well. I've even got one of my lists here. It's called Newly Minted Hot Markets. Newly Minted Hot Markets. Does, that sounds good, doesn't it? You crack me up though. You're the high techno geek guy and yet you've got blue tack and bits of paper <laughs> stuck to your wall. I don't want to fumble over the keyboard and <laughs> – so, it's only so many yeah. screens you can have. <laughs> <laughs> I've got – actually, at the moment, I've got two. I've got the big curved screen. With the, that's only to try and kind of compensate for my bad eyesight as I get older. It's because you stare at a screen too much. <laughs> I know. So, so you've got 330 markets that you've analysed and you, but you've been looking at median asking prices as opposed to median sale prices. Why is that? Yeah, so I, I quite like the median asking prices. Mm. It's giving me a, a – 
a, a really strong indicator of where things are going short term. So, you know, very often the median asking price has a, a, a pretty solid correlation to the sale price. And I've got access to a, a nice big sample of those asking prices. And sometimes you've got to wait two or three months before you know the sale price. So mm, in a rather volatile market, uh, an asking price has been a pretty good metric for me anyway. That's interesting about the lag because you're relying on land titles office data, are you? Yeah, so that flows through uh, and sometimes it's lagged by two or three months. Now, if you've got some markets that are increasing by, you know, 20% or more per annum, that three-month lag does have a fair impact. We're just talking about that increase. I mean, because I track it obviously in, in Sydney, you know, I decided to follow it rather than try to look at individual suburbs or even even SA3s, as you say, when I'm working on our pricing research for clients, and we'll talk about this, I guess, as we get further in here. You know, I've been looking at the core logic growth figures for this year. And let me just rattle them off mm. very quickly because they're, they're really shocking. So this is the whole of Sydney and then you can give us some interesting stats in terms of what you're seeing. So this is actual sales prices. The growth in houses, right, since January is 15%. That's CoreLogic house price growth, 15% in one quarter and the units – only six and a half or six point four percent in that same quarter, and the dwelling is obviously all of them twelve point six. That's phenomenal growth in a quarter. But you know what? What have you been seeing? I guess in in if you group markets across the country, what sort of percentages are you seeing? It's it's quite amazing. So you know, eighty five percent of markets have grown by five percent or more in the last twelve months. Sixty <laughs> percent. Or, or more have actually risen by 10% or higher. What's really interesting is 60 of those SA3 markets have actually increased by 20% or higher. So you, in the last- you just said actually 60 went 10% or higher. I think you mean. So, yeah, I, I'm so t- talking about percentages and markets. So, if I specifically, I'll focus on markets. Mm. I was going to say 60 markets have increased by 20% or more. Right. Okay. Got it. Which is about 20% of the markets out there. Are up by twenty percent. It's quite. It's, <laughs> yeah. It is quite amazing what's happening. And when you look, if you zoom out and and look at where that where it's all going, I know that there's a lot of week by week headlines that talk about auction clearance rates, and then people seem to draw conclusions as to where the market's going on last week's. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but f- from where I see, I've just applied some models, some some machine learning models that actually forecast what the inventory is likely to be in six months' time. And it's going from the current 3.5 months down to around 3.2. So I'm forecasting that things are actually getting tighter. Well, I think SQM had some research last month that kind of showed that the listing numbers did drop dramatically and a lot of the older listings were off going off the market, which is a sign that the market's in you know super hot. When the stuff that's been on the market for three to six months is selling, <laughs> it shows how much desperate people are basically. And if, you know, they, they might be on the market for two things. One, it's a poor asset or two, the vendor wants a big price that the market's not willing to pay. But if either of those are, if they're still selling, they're still, the vendor's probably not dropping their price because they've been on the market for three to six months. So the market's probably paying what they want. Risen to meet them. <laughs> or a desperate buyer that's just like missed out three times and just 
will pay buy the poor asset for a big price or it's just a poor asset and they're just selling because people are so desperate so yeah that that's a real worry i think when a lot of the poor stuff or the expensive stuff selling shows how the desperation in the market now where have prices fallen anywhere I mean, you said 85% have gone up more than 5%, 5% or more. So that's leaving 15%. Has any of those markets actually fallen? There, there are some price uh, areas or markets, SA3s, that have fallen in price, but a lot of these I will write off as a compositional blip. So uh, any, you know, you've got a lot of these areas that do have outback in the name, mm. which <laughs> you know they're hard to measure yeah. and they misbehave in a lot of models. So mm. most of the markets that have fallen in price, I would write them off as statistically uh, insignificant because they've got outback in the name. But equally, you've got a couple of areas that aren't exactly outback. But what makes sense here is that it is a compositional issue because Stonington East, for example, it's in Melbourne in the south. We've talked about that before. Yeah, yeah. So it's you know it's dropped it's dropped very marginally mm. in asking prices, but the inventory levels are so low. It's down around one point seven and still falling. So I would argue that that's very much a compositional bias. Mm. Rather than if there was like ten months of inventory sort of sitting on the market, you'd be like, well, that probably makes sense. Yeah. So and that that problem's amplified when people play around with suburbs and do their lists about highest growth and highest price change suburbs, which, you know, irked me. We've banged on about that many, many, many times, haven't we? <laughs> I know, and it, but it's still out there and there's, you know, there's, there's websites that have got a lot of traffic that are doing this. But it does apply equally to some of these um, SA3 markets that we analyse as well. Okay. So if we look, and I know that you like to look at inventory levels, right? Yes. And if so if we look at the correlation between inventory levels and what's happened to prices in the last 12 months... You know, if you're staring in the tea leaves and, and, you know, it's a bit dangerous talking about predictions because, of course, if anyone's downloaded our full or forecaster report, you'll see why we think predictions are not worth anything. <laughs> but here we are talking about predictions because, of course, people love them. So what do you think we can expect to see for the rest of 2021? At the moment, what I'm seeing is uh, there's been a couple of learnings for me in the last week or so is is that the things that are driving price increases, there's, there's a few things. So the first is that if it belongs to that category of a very strong seller's market, i.e. below three months of inventory, what really drives the highest price growth is how long it belongs or how long it stays in that category. Mm, so yeah. how many months is this a strong seller's market? So that's the build-up of FOMO. It is, yeah. it is, and it stays strong, so it's constant pressure, and they're your biggest price increase markets that we've <laughs> seen. So so you've got that. Then the other thing that's really jumped out at me, and I, I'm not too old to keep learning, is that there's a number of markets that might be currently, and, you know, if you look at it in a snapshot today and you don't look at the trend line, you say that's high inventory, prices are going to go down, but that's to ignore, that might ignore the trend. So if what I'm finding is that you've got a number of markets that might be higher inventory levels, i.e., you know, larger than nine months of inventory, but they're trending down. And this is a common thread across housing housing markets that have been, you know, fairly lacklustre for the last few years. So what's trending down, prices or inventory? Well, inventory level across the board 
is trending down right. for houses and units, but especially units. And as a result of this, it's that downward trending of the inventory levels that we are seeing a lot of increase in price in that in those low brackets. So, you know, so not major increases in price, but a lot of activity in that you know, zero to five percent growth bracket. I reckon a lot of this is probably first home buyers that have shifted away from houses back into apartments. So that's probably the first thing. Yes. And the second thing is investors are sort of back buying and are probably starting to buy apartments again just because they're much more affordable than say houses and houses have gone up so they think that they're an opportunity so is this is what you're sort of saying kent is a lot of the apartment markets across the country the inventories are dropping quite dramatically is that correct and and, lot, and this is in areas where they haven't really risen that much in terms of price yeah so there's there's here's i've got a list here i've got one of my listicles that i'm staring at <laughs> And, and um, you know, we've got some areas that aren't really renowned for being unit markets with Sunday, Port Douglas, et cetera. But the ones that you probably would relate to, Blacktown North, that's a good example. So, you know, it's it's asking prices fallen by 2%, but probably an, an interesting thing with, with unit prices is you really probably should be looking at something called the Case-Shiller Index. I'll cover that another day, whereas that it, sounds it looks, at the, looks at the repeat sale of the same property through time rather than measuring a, you know, a, a group of properties both new and and Ooh, uh, established. I'm very interested in that. Definitely we'll Let's talk about another yeah, episode. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So the, I think the Australian market, that suits very, very well because they turn over a little bit more, mm. whereas with houses it's been, you know, 12 plus years between drinks, whereas I think with a lot of units they do turn over five to seven years. So it's, it, it lends itself quite well to a repeat sale index. And what I'm finding specifically with measuring unit prices is things behave very differently when you've got a new unit block released. Can we do this next episode? We can. Okay. That's July's episode. Well, that lines very nicely with uh, pain and gain report that does show exactly what you were mm. talking about. Kent there in terms of they investors usually buy more apartments and units just generally trade a lot more than houses, which makes yeah. sense, right? Because yeah. they're going to occupy a difference. So that's an amazing episode. So let's do that one next month. July, but coming up. Across that list there, there's you know, you, you, a lot of stuff in and around Queensland, especially in Queensland, is dominating the list of unit markets where inventory levels are falling rapidly. But across the board, I've got to say, you know, unit markets, there's, there's suburbs. Yes, there are pockets of suburbs that are you know, still have high inventory and, and aren't performing that well. But when you zoom out and you start to look at a macro level, the unit market looks really different than it did six months ago. I think a lot of it is that, you know, because the unit markets are, say, sub a million, right? Or maybe it's even a little bit over in the sort of premium end, but it's usually well under that. And it does lend itself to that sort of first home buyer and investors. And a lot of the first home buyers we're seeing is shifting back into apartments. And, you know, some are the, the premium end, maybe it's the bigger two beds in the, you know, one plus. But, you know, I think a lot of the first home buyers that, you know, wanting to enter the market, you know, still got you know, a bit of FOMO there, they'll be back in buying apartments rather than the regions because the regions have sort of gone up. So I think that's what's probably really driving this unit change. Yeah, look, Chris, what's standing out to me that it, it looks like that a lot of the people retiring might be starting to zoom in on, on units true. in those typical retirement locations, your, your Noosas, for example, or your Coffs Harbour, Coolangatta, Tweed Valley, Broadbeach, Burley, etc., Maroochydore. These have all had very, very significant increases in prices for units 
and at the same time you can see some massive drops in the inventory level. So hmm. I can I can probably what I've hypothesized from this is that you've now got a lot of retirees exiting the city and competing. Interesting. Go shoulder to shoulder against a lot of professionals, working professionals that are also moving to those same locations. <laughs> it's like a it's an interesting application of the ripple effect, isn't it? It is. Yeah, moving into units rather than houses. You know, we all think about the ripple effect being suburb and location driven and obviously, you know, the regions has been, it's pretty extreme ripple effect, but now now it's almost like a vertical integration ripple effect. Well, one client was looking at this place in Sunshine Coast last week and sent it to me and I had a quick squeeze and I was like, you know, 1.8 million. And I was like, okay, it's sold recent, like two years ago. I think it's close, maybe closer to three for 900. And I thought, oh, they must have done a big reno. And so I looked back at old photos on RP data and I was like, they haven't done anything. It's pretty much exactly the same. So this place had doubled. Now, they haven't, I don't know if it's sold for that price. I was like, they decided not to buy it. But this place has pretty much doubled in three years. And it was a nice property, you know, in terms of it really had that sort of wow, that wow factor to it. But ultimately, two years ago, it sold for 900. So you have to think a lot of these people in these region areas that got to be a bit opportunistic where they're going, well, this support this for 600. Now it's worth 1.2. Maybe we should sort of downsize or maybe we should sell out of these markets. Well, there might have been holiday apartments too. You know, you'd be thinking, well, God, mm. this is time. And it would have sat flat for years. These yeah, markets haven't done well. anything for, you know, for a long time, a lot of them. So it's like I'd be getting out too. You go, yeehaw, pay, pay time, <laughs> payola. Well, Airbnb, you know, rules are changing in these sort of locations as well. They're not as, you know, the locals are getting upset with, you know, housing stock and problems with rentals crisis is in these areas as well so you know rules around airbnb how long you can rent them out for per year whether you can even do it in certain towns so you just gotta be very careful you know if you own one of these for a holiday let because the rules may change yeah where are some of the areas can that have got high inventory levels and yet still seeing some price growth yeah, well, this is fairly common. So what I'm what I'm finding, and this has kind of been my new discovery, is we've got these areas that are marginally increasing in price, but still have that high level of inventory. And I'm kind of finding that it's it's uh, look again, it's those those a lot of those areas that are uh, have got the outback in the name. <laughs> so you know that's a that's a given. But I, I'm I'm pretty much finding that that any of those markets that haven't been on the, the the hot, hot, hot list, they're all experiencing the same thing. So they're going from high inventory levels down, you know, but trending down marginally, but still are up there. So, yeah, I've got, look, there's some interesting ones. There, there's some, you know, I'm just trying to, I'm struggling for for, for my list because I don't. Well, here we go. I've got it in front of you. Far North, Catherine, Esperance and Lower Murray. There we go. Yeah. So Far North, Catherine, Esperance, Lower Murray are examples, but I think some of these are really odd markets in terms when you look at what's selling, you know, there's a mixed bag of properties. They vary from lifestyle properties through to normal resi. So that's some of those particular areas. The one that's interesting for me though is yeah, it's a Tari Gloucester, Hobart Northeast, they they're and Mildura. Mm. They're examples that have had have got fairly low inventory levels, but still flat prices as well. So there's some some oddballs. Mm, interesting. All of this, you know, it, it can get a bit overwhelming and or 
know, think, what does this mean? Okay. So how do we apply this if we're thinking about what's where's the direction heading for the rest of this year? I mean, there's a lot of talk around about things slowing down. We're seeing evidence, not so much of in Sydney, we're seeing evidence, not so much of a slow down. It's not that perceptible really because prices are still rising, but we are seeing the pace of rising slow and we measure it in, in quite a micro sort of way. But we are seeing that differential between what we believe a property is, you know, should sell for in terms of fair market value. The gap between that and the ultimate sale price is actually shrinking a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's still more than what we think is should be fair, <laughs> you know. But and and we factor in growth and everything when we when we come up with these figures. But when that differential starts starts tightening up, we get oh good, it's getting a little bit less out of control, but it's still rising. But you know. What about the the whole of the country? I mean, it's there's not one Australian property market as we keep banging on about, but you know you've got 330 markets and 85 percent of those have increased in value more than five percent in the last 12 months. What what are we thinking? Is that sustainable to continue? I don't think it is, but I've said that before. Mm. <laughs> Haven't we all? Can't keep <laughs> right. going. It can't keep happening. <laughs> so look, I, I see two probably two key trends here is a lot of those that have been very very hot are going to start to get some normality back. But there are still some new markets that are kind of moving in. This is my list. I'm looking at my newly minted hot market list here. <laughs> and some of these markets are going to come into the fray. So, you know, Shoalhaven's uh, going to start to improve in a, in a rather big way. Nambour, Noosa Hinterland is, has been strong, but I still think it's got a lot of growth ahead. Places like Gippsland, Gippsland East. So, you know, again, it's a below, you know, the list price, typical asking price below 500K. So I think a lot of people are chasing uh, relative affordability and inventory levels for somewhere like Gippsland East or Latrobe Gippsland have uh, really plummeted. So hit it's just hit that below three-month mark, uh, which makes it that, you know, very, very strong seller's market. But it's fallen by over seven months compared to where it was a year ago. So there's there's a number of markets that have had some dramatic shifts, but probably the big one we will be talking about, I think, in three to six months' time has, is the shift and the change in the unit market. So what it sounds to me that a hot market overreaches, you know, so because basically FOMO then drives prices even higher and higher and higher. Then it gets to a point where there's either an affordability or a, a wake-up call. People go, that's just too far and the elastic is just stretched with max. Yeah. And then they go, okay, well, I'm going to look elsewhere. And then they go elsewhere. They either look at units or they look in another area. Then they will pile into that area and those prices will go up until the point people stop and look back to where they originally wanted to buy and go, hang on a minute, those prices aren't so crazy anymore. And so there's this sort of, you know, what's that game where you're trying to, you've got a mattock and you're trying to hammer down those little things yeah. that keep popping up, whatever that thing's called. That's what the property market's a bit like, isn't it? <laughs> That's a great analogy. <laughs> They're not squirrels, are they? <laughs> I don't know what that game's called. I have to look it up. <laughs> I think it's uh, prairie dogs. Um, <laughs> Just the, I think um, whack-a-mole. Whack-a-mole. <laughs> what I've seen is I think in March was a crazy month. And we didn't have that many clients buy because it was just such a month where everyone was missing out and probably a good thing. Yeah. And some of the sales that we see, I don't think they've been replicated. I think that some of the sales in March were well ahead of the market and 
you know, sales in April and May aren't at those prices. I don't know if you've seen the same, Veronica, but some of the, you know, things I've seen, you know, clients are buying better properties at similar prices and if not cheaper than some of the stuff that sold in, in March. I think it was just one of those months where there was such a severe FOMO. And I think what we're also seeing is that a lot of the first home buyers are pushed out of the housing market now because it's just run on them. And so they're shifting into the apartments. But the houses of people who are in those areas that and now can sell them for dramatically more than they could have 12 months ago, there are a big portion of those that have got quite low debt versus the value of that property. And I think you'll start to see this year is a lot of the upgraders will start saying, actually, there's more stock coming on and that, you know, other houses in the area that are, you know, maybe a little bit more expensive than theirs and then they'll list their house. And so I think this next year, if the market's going to keep on ticking, it's whether the upgraders have the confidence to take on more debt. And that's going to come down to where they think interest rates are going to be and how the economy is performing, et cetera. And recently in the last month, interest rates have jumped a little bit, just the three, the four years jumped quite a bit. And then the three years and even the two years have started jumping in the last week or two. And so I think that's the real concern here is, well, if, if the market's going to keep going, it's not going to be because of first-time buyers. It's going to be where the upgraders keep start entering and start taking on more debt. And I just wonder whether they're going to do it you know, because if they've got the confidence to do it, because that's what that's what will drive that sort of market, that next level. So it's not going to be sustainable. For, and investors don't play in that market either. So it's only going to be that upgrader and whether they want to do it. Well, I, I suspect the upgrader has been pulling the market along, to be honest, because, you know, for, and certainly in, in our area, that that's really where it started. And, and it started out of the back of lockdown where people were like, oh, I need a bigger house, you know, and it's like, Get me out of well, here. I think a lot of it was the apartment to the house, maybe. That, but that's, I think now it's the houses to the houses. So. No, no, that's what I'm talking about. With our, a lot of our clients, you know, that's the houses upgrading to a bigger house. And I guess mm. when, you're, when you're looking, I mean, because, of course, our area is that 10K inner um, ring of Sydney. So you are looking at areas where people might buy a two-bedroom workers' cottage as their entry level and, you know, and then they have the second child and they're busting at the seams and or even if they had a three-bedroom because the demand for four-bedroom houses has just gone through the roof because, you know, they might have their two kids but then they need the home office now. And, you know, it, it's that nothing like an inconvenient period of time where there's not enough room for everybody to do what they need to do <laughs> to make you think, I need more space just in case this happens again or whatever. Mm. So, you know, we definitely, I would say that that the middle part of the market moved first, you know, from what I could see, moved first and really decisively and that sort of pulled prices up at cheaper level and obviously pushed them up at a higher level. Mm. I think it was about... A year ago that we we covered on one of the episodes uh, and I analysed the shift in the four-bedroom medians mm. versus the two and three, mm. and it was huge. So I don't have that data in front of me now, yeah. but it might be worth covering that again in the next episode just to see because it clearly spelled out that there was a, an exodus towards the home office and getting out and getting bigger. Yeah. So how does – all this sort of data that you're running on, that you're working on and, and all the things that we know that do and don't impact on price rises, how, do, how does it impact 
pricing models or AVMs. Um, yeah. You know, because obviously agents use these things when they're actually pricing, you know, when they go through a property and, and to list it and they uh, a lot of them will use an AVM, they press a button on RP data or whatever. And obviously a lot of a, a lot of buyers are using, a lot of banks and mortgage brokers are handing them out to their clients, you know. So, and look, I've done an entire, well, I've done a lot of research on this and they're pretty horrible in terms of relying on them. But what's, what's the impact going to be on AVMs? Is it going to make them even worse? Yeah, I think even more hor- horrible, more hor- <laughs> horrible. Horrible. Um, so I, I think the biggest issue is if the if the uh, AVM is only using the settled sales that are then flowing through the value of general or the state level data, that three month lag can often mean you know in today's environment in some of these markets it could could mean a you know five percent uh, change. In the price, so uh, well, I let, think that- let's go back to that core logic data I was referring to earlier. You know, if you look at a house that sold three months ago in Sydney, then potentially you should be factoring that up by eleven percent. Yeah. You know, if you're looking at an apartment bought three months ago in Sydney, you should be factoring up by five percent. And you know, and and this is what agents don't do that. And this is one of the problems with your price guides is that they are just looking at recent sales and going, oh, well, that's off of that, that's off of that. They're not actually adjusting them. And so that is one reason why price guides will always be under in these sort of market conditions just one of the reasons. And obviously, like you say, it feeds into the AVMs because there's no adjustment in those AVMs and valuers don't adjust for price movement either. Correct, yeah. So in, in the States, they, they use something called a grid adjustment. So they do adjust for time and they adjust for size. And a lot of the AVM, the logic behind the AVMs often uh, you actually uses that both in, in the US and Australia. So for example, an AVM would, would take a property that is, uh, that is aged and that could be older than three months or older than six months or older than 12 months and then index it forward. Mm. So that depending on the logic that you're using behind the scenes with your AVM, if you say, I won't index anything younger than six months, then you're going to be out. out. <laughs> so you would need to do it. I'd even go as far as saying maybe we need to change it and it needs to forecast what the price is going to be in three months or six months and use the forecast. So there could be a big shift <laughs> in how the, how these things should work. Well, because that, you know, in reality, uh, in a falling market, you know, AVMs are going to be high and, and in a rising market they're going to be low, right? I mean, yeah. assuming that they've got any level of accuracy at all. But as I said earlier, when we research property, we literally do go through every recent sale that's relevant to the property. And sometimes we have to go further back in time because there's not enough really good comparables, or sometimes we have to go further out geographically and adjust for suburb differences, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a very complex process and it requires, you know, it's art and science. And I've gone through, explained the process in previous episodes, but, you know, you have to adjust and we'll adjust downwards too, obviously in a falling market because, you know, effectively then you are predicting by using that adjustment, aren't you? Absolutely. We've seen massive differences in the RP data. So clients ask them for us and I always say don't look too concerned about the actual number of it. But, you know, when you are looking at what they're trying to sell it for versus what it says in the, you know, the AVM, we're like, God, it's 30% above what that's saying. Mm. We've also seen some vendors trying to just try their luck with properties. You know, a client missed out on a property last week. I think it might even still be for sale. The agent tried all these tactics to get them to make an offer. 
and it was just so much above what else was selling in that market and what else had been sold. It was very obvious that the vendor was just trying their luck and the agent believed it was, you know, it obviously got the listing and believed it was. So they were trying to get like high ones and it's probably only worth like maybe 1.5. And the, the gap between what it was probably worth and what the agent wanted and was obviously promised to his vendor was so much, and that was well, well above the AVM. And so it's a really interesting thing because the client was looking at this AVM, they were looking at what other, other sales was and they were in love with the property and the vendors, the agent saying, we've got this other offer, you know, you're going to miss out. <laughs> and they're like, well, we're not going to, we're not interested at that price. And it's still on the market now from what I, from what I know. So it sounds like the agent was, um, you know, talk, telling porkies, but you're right. <laughs> these AVMs are, are quite dangerous at the moment because if you base your decisions on a, that and the market has moved, well, you're always going to keep missing out on the market because you're always going to be well behind, but it's about how far ahead of that do you go. And I think they're shifted though too. One of the main use cases for these AVM is, uh, AVMs is, is lead generation. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much. And I, I think that if people do realise exactly what their, their purpose is, maybe they, they can actually start to view them for what they are. Well, I think, yeah, Zillow, Zillow changed the rules there. You know, suddenly it became a, a media tool, a lead tool, whereas, you know, in the early days they were a, a check tool to validate an appraisal. Mm, but everybody wants to know what their house is worth, but yes. only if it's worth more than they think. <laughs> <laughs> because then they'll have all the justification for why that's not correct. <laughs> it's quite funny. <laughs> and But I, I do think people, yeah, they do look for that confirmation bias and they ignore, you know, to your point earlier with that story about, you know, that price breaking records is, you know, they ignore the price segments and, and suddenly, you know, forget the fact that there's not been any sale ever above $1.8 million in your suburb and you're going to break a record by plus two or 300000 It makes no sense. Well, it might make no sense, but it happens. And, you know, is that I've had two situations, you know, in, in recent months where, each time the client didn't buy either of them. The first client we still went to auction, but you know, there's no hope in hell of buying it. And the second one, we the client went, no way, I don't want to be buying the most expensive house in this suburb. You know, so it's a suburb actually in the St George area, so it's a little bit outside of our 10k radius. And and this particular house had been, you know, knocked down about four years ago and rebuilt and, you know, fully over-engineered and stoned throughout it, like quite a lot of money thrown at it. But, it, you know, it was would have been the most expensive build in that suburb, you know, and and I said to my client, I said, look, do you really want to own the most expensive house in this area? Because there are other properties that are somewhat comparable in surrounding suburbs that are better suburbs, closer to the water, where there's a lot more of this type of property. So there's more of an acceptance and it's, mm. it's more, it's, it, you know, you've got more of a, a market for it when you go to sell it as well, as opposed to being the isolated one and hoping that there's going to be a lot of other bills like this, you know, around it. And, you know, but somebody did pay it. Somebody, they paid, you know, $3.3 million in a suburb that you know, I think the most recent sale, oh, it was, it was close to a million dollars more. You know, I, I don't wow. have the numbers in front of me, but it was such a, such a huge percentage over the previous most expensive sale in the suburb. Is this Cogra Rockdale area? It is in that area, yeah. Not that, yes, yeah. So it's it's had a massive. It's on it's on one of my lists. Oh, yeah. there and, you go. And it's it's the change in asking price in the last twelve months is plus forty three percent. Yeah. So it's quite crazy, and the inventory levels at the moment below one point five. So, 
and trending down. Yeah. So you can see that, that that level of crazy is going to continue on. Yeah, we've got a client in that area that probably was worth two 12 months ago and they got the agents been hounding them. They're um, one of our older age clients uh, and they're thinking about sort of you know, kids are getting, you know, end of school and they're like, well, maybe we should take advantage of this. We don't need this, you know, when the kids all come out in a few, you know, get out in a few years' time. And, yeah, every time the agent calls them, it keeps promising them more money and now it's like in the low threes. So <laughs> it's kind of gone, you know, maybe high ones to the low threes. So, you know, you do the numbers on that. Now the agent could be telling, you know, porkies, I guess, but, you know, comparable sales, you know, similarly they've seen are in that. So, it's, it's, you know, that if, if, they, if you need that extra million dollars in retirement, it's a big difference, you know, mm-hmm. especially if you can downsize. So I think you'll find that higher prices should lead to higher listings, but your data is saying, you're not expecting that, cat. Is that sort of? Uh, I can't get inside the head of a lot of these um, vendors. What, I, what I, the anecdotal feedback I'm getting from people I'm talking to is that people are still questioning. Well, where do I go? If I, I'd love to yeah. sell, but where do yeah. I go? So until that question is answered, I really don't know. What I can see at the moment is just more of this, more of this heat continuing, but more the heat being distributed. Back to that Cogger Rockdale area, what I have seen is quite a lot of knockdown and rebuilds. Yeah. And so that's another thing when you're looking at the composition of this data to understand one of the reasons why they might have such a high increase in asking prices because they actually, you have to look at what stock is actually being sold. And yeah, sure, people are knocking down old houses and and the and, and subdividing. There's, there's a, I can't remember the, 850 or not, I think it's 850 square metres. If the block's bigger than that, they can subdivide it, right, as long as they've got the right frontage. And so obviously then developers will come in, but it's the owner-occupiers that are paying big prices, not so much the developers. But, you know, that obviously if you can build two properties on on a block where there's only been one house and the house is very tired and dated, then, then that raises, the, you know, obviously increases the value of that individual property. And then you've got the finished products being sold on the market individually being sold at higher prices because they're brand new, you know. So these things do increase listing, you know, asking prices and sale prices. And so getting in and understanding that is is really important. And certainly when we're looking at something like that, the very first thing I think of is, well, are you in good company? How many other people are paying that sort of money to be in that area? And and the other example that I had was a property in Stanmore. It was beautiful home, freestanding, but but like a wide single fronted. Looked like a terrace, but it's not because it's freestanding. But and and this particular property, they were pitching it over three, and I was like, well, yeah, probably get there because it's you know it's nicely presented, it's got lovely features, blah blah blah, it's on a good street. But when I actually looked into the data in the last three years, I think. Only, I think it was three or four houses had sold at over three million in Stanmore, and all of them were on significantly bigger blocks of land. So this one ended up selling for three point nine, and it's like it, it just sticks out like the proverbial because it's so little house for the money compared to what else is sold for less in recent times. And I wonder how long that, like you say, they'll either set a new benchmark and that's a new standard for the area, or it actually will still stick out for a period of time. And that can happen even in a hot market. Yeah. One of my clients emailed me this week and said, uh, this is what's happening in his suburb. And I won't mention the suburb, but what they've been happening has been a lot of new builds, those big you know, probably six bedroom, four bathroom sort of houses, you know, that typical sort of 
you know, the big pillars out the front yeah. sort of houses. Nouveau. Um, big Nouveau. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they've been selling, you know, say five, six mil, which is big numbers, right? But what people are doing is they're basing their purchases on the three to $4 million mark based on what these, you know, fully, you know, kitted out brand new homes are selling at. So let's say the builds on those are two million. They're saying, well, if that's selling for six and it costs two million to build, well, that means this land's worth four million. And it's very dangerous to do that on a small number of really high expensive sales because, you know, that's just because there was a very small supply. There's a ridiculous amount of FOMO. That doesn't mean that if you try to sell 20 blocks at $4 million that you'd have enough buyers there. And that's what people are doing. So people are like, well, if that's selling for six, that that land must be worth four and then I could have this finished product worth six. And it's very dangerous doing that because you haven't got enough sales at that top end to know that your land's worth four million. So if there is a cool off at the top end, now they're only selling at five. Well, that means your house, your land's only worth three. And so just could be very careful basing your purchase based on something that's not what you're buying because it can very easily go the other way. Mm. I wonder if the people looking to break the records uh, are looking in adjacent markets. <laughs> what what you they say, can buy. Looking to break the records as in the, the sellers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or, you know, looking to pay a you know, off the chart price without actually uh, exploring other markets and saying, hang on a minute, I can go from the inner west to the eastern suburbs. Well, it's funny how some people don't pop their heads over the parapet, that's for sure. Mm. And certainly when it comes to Sydney, and potentially I'm guessing Melbourne may be quite similar. There's all these lines of demarcation, I won't go over that road or I won't go over that bridge, you know. So there's this myth, and, and look, it's not always a myth, but, you know, there's the myth of the eastern suburb buyer in the inner west, you know, and agents go out and trot this story out to every single owner. Oh, this is very much an eastern suburbs home and the eastern suburbs buyers come over and they pay so much more than the inner west buyer, blah bloody blah I mean, we used to trot it out 20 years ago and I was selling you know, this is nothing new. And yeah, you tried it on I'm me. I'm sure I did, you know. So, oh, the Eastern Suburbs buy them. The, really, the, re, the fact is every now and then, yeah, you get one. But they're not that stupid. They're going to pay overs for a property just because, you know, they've come from the east, you know. <laughs> yes, sure, a terrace, <laughs> the equivalent terrace in Paddington versus Balmain, it's going to cost you more in Paddington, yes. But that doesn't mean that they suddenly come across to Balmain and go, oh, brilliant, I'm going to pay Paddington price. It just, you know, there's very few of those examples happen. It does happen on the odd occasion someone is really silly and they just don't know, they don't pay attention. But generally speaking, it doesn't happen. You know, so yeah, buyers often are very, very local in their focus. And, you know, but I do have, I have one client who's really unique. He, he's basically, for him, he just wants a particular type of house. He doesn't actually care where it is. And I keep quizzing him on it. You sure? <laughs> You're really sure of it. You don't care when you drive outside your driveway or walk outside. You don't give it. You don't care where you are. No, nah, I just want a certain type of house. <laughs> really unusual. <laughs> he is unique. Let's go build it in the bush. Yes, almost like going, we can do anything. <laughs> anyway, all uh, right. Well, is there anything else you need to add in terms of, you know, what we're expecting for the rest of the year? You know, yeah. are we seeing, a, a, you know, when we talk about a slowdown, we're not saying the market is going to, Turn. We're just basically saying the pace and rate of growth is slowing in some areas, but is going to pick up in others. It is, yeah. Is there anywhere where you're seeing that maybe it will start to go down? 
Well, I think the analogy is the heat's dissipating. I don't know if it's disappearing. And probably the one key takeaway, the one metric I wanted to save for, for the end of the show was of 188 markets that I've analysed for units. These are the ones that have got a, a reasonable volume of listings, 50 more listings. I've analysed 188 markets. The inventory levels for these unit markets is now half of what it was a year ago. Wow. So we're now down to 4.17 months on average today. So we start, we start for a lot of these unit markets, we're starting to move into that very, very strong market category. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> oh, that's going to be interesting because that means a whole bunch of really crap stock is going to start going up. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it won't be everywhere. There's pockets, there's suburbs that people are staying away from, mm. faulty towers, dodgy builds. Mm-hmm. I think people are people are avoiding those particular suburbs. Yeah. But I'm talking broadly here, on average, it's looking good. Very interesting. Okay. Well, we are looking – I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We're actually looking forward to next next month's now because we're going to do that that repeated sales index and we'll we'll revisit the price growth of four-bedroom homes versus everything else. Just while you're on that, Ken, yes. with the resale, can you do it at a street level like and compare sort of busy roads versus – I've done that many times. So the busy, the busy roads – so there's a couple of key learnings that I've applied to AVM designs – Main roads uh, is a, uh, a binary category that I put into most models. So zero or one, are you on a main road? And typically, on average, that's you know, anything from 15 to 30 or 40% price difference in the AVM models, depending on the suburb. Oh. All right, let's talk about that next month. Thanks so much for this. It's going to be a meaty one. Thanks so much. Thank you. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.